As many of you may know, I went to a fan meetup recently. I was in New York City with Genetically Modified Skeptic, and we were doing some filming for some things and stuff and such and whatnot, so we'll leave it at that for the moment. But while I was there, I had a fan meetup with him, and it was absolutely fantastic. I love fan meetups. They are absolutely fantastic. So here's what happened. I'll give you guys just a little bit of information on why I was there. We were doing some, what would you call it, I maybe recon on Jehovah's Witnesses because they have their headquarters there. So we were kind of researching it and talking about going to the branch and, you know, the, the main headquarters and seeing the exhibits and talking to some Jehovah's Witnesses on the street, things like that. So that's why I ended up going to New York City was to do that kind of thing, do some filming and, and stuff like that for that purpose. Now, Genetically Modified Skeptic, Drew, he's putting this on his channel. So I, I don't really want to talk about it too much until it releases. But it's going to be interesting, I think. So keep a lookout for it on his channel. When he releases his, I'll talk about the whole story. After we did all of that stuff, the filming and everything, after all of that, we ended up having a fan meetup, I think on Friday night, I think it was like 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. or something like that. And it was hosted at Central Park or maybe it was Madison Square Park. Maybe I think it was Madison Square Park in New York City. Interestingly enough, it was on the night that Manhattan Henge happens. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but Manhattan Henge is this thing where the sun, it happens once a year. I think it's two days in a row it happens once a year. The sun sets in such a way, from such an angle, that it perfectly lines up with the uh, streets of Manhattan so that you can watch the sun set over the horizon in the city. It's really, really cool. So it happened while we were at the meetup, and we all went out into the street and watched it happen and everything. So at the meetup, um, I show up, and I think there were probably 50 people there. Uh, I think 50 people coming and going. Had a lot of really solid, interesting conversations with a lot of people. It was absolutely amazing. One of my favorite things is like talking to fans and hearing their stories and, and all of that other really cool stuff. So it was really fantastic to get to do that. One of the people I spoke with was... Uh, Jewish. And I've never really sat down and talked to a Jewish person about their religion before in this type of depth. I, I had a friend who I worked with. He's Jewish. And we talked a little bit. Not, not like this, though. This guy had a lot to say about it. And it's, it's very unique in New York. It's not like other places. New York as a city is kind of split up into like sections almost like the this people of this ethnicity live in this area people of that one live in that area people of this religion live here and that one live there it's it's very split up not like government enforced or anything it's just like culturally enforced like you just want to be around people of a similar cultural background and heritage i guess and that's kind of how it worked. So this this Jewish guy is telling me about the whole history of 
the city and Judaism in the city and his role in it and how he feels about it and everything. I don't really want to talk about it too much in depth here because, you know, I don't want to like spread some kind of information that he doesn't want to be spread. So I'll, I'll watch what I say about it, but I'll just speak in generalities. He just gave me a lot of information about how Judaism as a religion works and how ultra-Orthodox like groups work. And from the sounds of it, in a lot of ways, they all kind of group together in, in the same neighborhood, in the same communities in many cases. So I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about that, especially considering the recent news reports, or reasonably recent, about measles outbreaks in Jewish communities, in ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities in New York. Because this guy was kind of right right in there and, and was heavily involved in all of that and saw it happening. So let's just take a look at one of these articles and see what it has to say. This one's called, Why Measles Hit So Hard Within the New York Orthodox Jewish Community. It says, The Rockland County, New York woman hadn't told her obstetrician that she had a fever and rash, two key signs of a measles infection. A member of the Orthodox Jewish community there, she went to, into premature labor at 34 weeks, possibly as a result of the infection. Her baby was born with measles and spent his first 10 days in the neonatal intensive care unit. The infant is home now, but we don't know how this baby will do, said Dr. Patricia Schnabel Rupert, the health commissioner for Rockland County. When young children contract measles, they face a heightened risk of complications from the disease, including seizures or hearing and vision problems down the road. The measles case Rupert described is just one of many. New York State's outbreaks, which began last October, have gone on longer and infected more people than any other current outbreak nationwide. More than 275 cases of the disease have been confirmed statewide through the first week of March, primarily in the New York City borough of Brooklyn and in Rockland County towns northwest of the city. That total makes up about half of the 578 confirmed cases in 11 states that were reported nationwide by the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention from January 2018 through the end of last month. Washington State, with 76 cases by the end of February, has the second highest number of cases. So, basically, there have been some real issues in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities about vaccinations. And that's all fine and dandy until the disease actually starts in infecting people and becomes a real public danger, as it, as it has it says, although some Orthodox Jews claim that vaccinations are against Jewish law, that's not correct, said Dr. Aaron Glatt, who's also a rabbi and chairman of the Department of Medicine at South Nassau Communities Hospital on Long Island. There's not a single opinion that says vaccination is against Jewish law, he said. Sounds a little bit like Jehovah's Witnesses and blood transfusions to me. As public health officials and health care providers battle to get the outbreaks under control, one of their biggest challenges is communicating to people that measles is a menacing disease to be taken seriously. People don't want to get vaccines because they don't think they need them, said Dr. Paul Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. 
the very last paragraph here says the public may have grown complacent before the vaccine program began in the u.s in 1963 as many as four million people became infected every year nearly 50,000 were hospitalized and up to 500 people died annually by 2000 measles was a disease that public health officials said was essentially eradicated in the u.s thanks to a comprehensive vaccine program that reduced the number of cases by 99 percent we basically have these extremists here that have a very extreme interpretation of their holy book or of their laws and are putting the public at risk for the sake of their religious beliefs. That's when it becomes a problem to me. I understand the need for freedom of expression and for religious freedom. I understand that need. But when you start endangering the public, it's no longer just your choice. When you are putting people at risk with your choices, it's no longer just your choice. With Jehovah's Witnesses, they have this issue with blood transfusions. I feel like in many ways, it shouldn't just be the parent's choice to not give their kid a blood transfusion and let the kid die. And in a lot of cases when that happens, luckily the state does intervene and forces the hospital to give the kid a blood transfusion anyways if it's required. Unfortunately, usually by the time the state has a chance to step in, it's too late. So I'm all for religious freedom until it affects other people or until it affects somebody in some serious negative way, like by killing them or putting their life at risk in some way. Now, there's another article here that kind of talks about what ultra-Orthodox Judaism is. So let's give it a read. I just want to read, like, little pieces of it. I'm kind of unclear on how to pronounce some of these. I think it's Herodim. Herodim are perhaps the most visibly identifiable subset of Jews today. They're easy, they're easy to spot uh, Haredi men in black suits and wide-brimmed black hats, Haredi women in long skirts, thick stockings, and head coverings, but much harder to understand. Indeed, the history of beliefs and practices of these devout Jews remain a mystery to many who live outside of their cloistered communities. The word Haredi is a catch-all term, either an adjective or a noun, which covers a, a broad array of theologically, politically, and socially conservative Orthodox Jews, sometimes referred to as ultra-Orthodox. What unites Haredim, I guess is how it's pronounced, is their absolute reverence for Torah, including both the written and oral law, as the central and determining factor in all aspects of life. Consequently, respect and status are often accorded in proportion to the greatness of one's Torah scholarship, and leadership is linked to learnedness. In order to prevent outside influence and contamination of values and practices, Haredim strive to limit their contact with the outside world, avoiding as much as possible both non-Haredi Jews and non-Jews. Interaction with outsiders is generally confined to basic economic contact and unavoidable public interaction, such as going to the post office. However, certain groups of Haredim, notably, but not exclusively, members of Chabad Lubavitch, do make contact with non-Haredi Jews for the purpose of Kirov, encouraging others to adopt more stringent religious observance. So what I'm understanding about this is they don't believe in working with the outside world as little as possible, but they will for the sake of bringing new members in. 
That's pretty much what I'm reading from this. Seems really similar to Jehovah's Witnesses, except in this case, with this specific Jewish group, they are very, uh, very, they're a lot more closed off than Jehovah's Witnesses are, I think. Because Jehovah's Witnesses will at least work within society. They will work with, in, and go to school with the rest of society. But this, this group does not. Sometimes they associate with other Jews for one reason or another, try, usually trying to bring them back or bring them into the religion in some way. But that's pretty much it. I mean, that, that's, that's really extreme. So let me continue reading this here. It says, The first Herodim. The Haredi phenomenon is relatively recent, though its precise origins can be difficult to trace. In the 19th century, with the spread of industrialization and urbanization, the barriers that once kept Jews out of European society were loosened. The consequent emergence of a new, more worldly kind of Jew prompted a defensive backlash, which led to the birth of an extremely conservative, anti-secular, isolationist expression of Judaism. Major Haredi leaders of this era included prominent Eastern European rabbinic figures such as Rabbi Chaim of Volozhin and Rabbi Yisrael Mir Kagan, also known as the Chofetz Chaim. That's 1838 to 1933. And I could be wrong here, but I feel like I the the guy that I talked to about Judaism at the meetup may have mentioned him. So anyway. Point is that there are extreme groups out there who are actually causing like a lot of issues. I forever ago I talked about Judaism in another like in in a video on my main channel and I mentioned that I didn't think that it was a cult. And that is that that's true. Judaism, I don't believe that Judaism is a cult because it's too broad. I don't think Christianity or Islam are cults either. So anyways, the guy that I talked to at the meetup was really, really fascinating. And honestly, I wish that I could have had more time to talk to him. I wish that there was more time to ask him questions, but I was only there for so long, and I was trying to talk to a bunch of other people and everything too, you know. I, God, I had so many questions for him. I really do feel like I need to research this more heavily, uh, Judaism. I, I was just saying, I don't think that I would call Judaism a cult, just like I wouldn't call Christianity or Islam a cult. It's too broad. I would call Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons a cult. And the reason that I would call those cults and not Christianity more broadly is because there's specific behavior modification taking place in a classical conditioning Pavlovian style. That's not how things are with traditional standard religions, with your average Methodist or Lutheran church. That's not what's happening. That doesn't work that way there. Certainly at some of those churches it does. But I'm looking for behavior modification in a classical conditioning style. Uh, rules being enforced, a system of rewards and punishments being enforced from a hierarchy. You do not get that with every religion. And the result of that, the result of that type of modification is putting on a cult personality. It's glassy eyes and perma-smile. It's a new personality that they're programming into somebody. Not all religions do that. That's why I say that not everything is a cult. But I do believe that there are Jewish cults. It's just, we have to drill down and get deeper. I, I can't call Judaism as a whole a cult, or Christianity, or Islam. 
just have to drill down. So out of curiosity, I wanted to take a look at Jewish dietary laws, an overview of laws and regulations. How do you keep something kosher? What is kosher? And, and is it difficult? So I found this website that talked a little bit about it. So let's just give this website a read. It starts off, is keeping kosher difficult? Keeping kosher is not particularly difficult in and of itself. What makes keeping kosher difficult is the fact that the rest of the world does not do so. Okay, that's kind of funny. The basic underlying rules are fairly simple. If you buy your meat at a kosher butcher and buy only kosher certified products at the market, the only thing you need to think about is the separation of meat and dairy. Keeping kosher only becomes difficult when you try to eat in a non-kosher restaurant or at the home of a person who does not keep kosher. In those situations, your lack of knowledge about your host's ingredients and the food preparation techniques make it very difficult to keep kosher. So it's things like uh, a, a really strict interpretation of the kosher law, from my understanding, is you can't cook fish and meat in the same oven or in the same pans. They have to be kept completely separate from each other. Uh, if you cook fish in an oven, that oven takes on that status. If it's the last thing you cooked, it, it takes on that status. Now, some groups, from my understanding, take a more lenient uh, interpretation of this rule and say, if the oven cools down between cooks, basically, it loses its fish status or its chicken status or whatever. So in more lenient Jewish households, that's what you'll find. But you still can't eat chicken with cheese, for example. You can't eat um, meat with dairy. It's actually very, very complex. Like, all of the rules are complex. I know they're saying keeping kosher isn't particularly difficult in and of itself. I would disagree with that. If the rest of the world catered to the, the requirements, then it would be easy. But they, they don't cater to the requirements because the rest of the world doesn't really care. So it's difficult by itself. If the rest of the world is not assisting, then it's difficult. I think it's kind of silly to take all of these extra steps and put all this extra work in to do all these ridiculous things. But you know what? If it's their sincerely held belief, then whatever. Doesn't even matter to me. So let's continue reading here. It says, the fundamental rules of Kashrut. Although the details of Kashrut I know I'm pronouncing this wrong. I apologize to my Jewish fans. Although the details of Kashrut are extensive, the laws all derive from a few fairly simple, straightforward rules. Certain animals may not be eaten at all. This restriction includes the flesh, organs, eggs, and milk of the forbidden animals. Of the animals that may be eaten, the birds and mammals must be killed in accordance with Jewish law. All blood must be drained from the meat or broiled out before it's eaten. Certain parts of permitted animals may not be eaten. Meat, the flesh of birds and mammals, cannot be eaten with dairy. Fish, eggs, fruits, vegetables, and grains can be eaten with either meat or dairy. According to some views, fish may not be eaten with meat. Utensils that have come into contact with meat may not be used with dairy and vice versa. Utensils that have come into contact with non-kosher food may not be used with kosher food. This applies only where the contact occurred while the food was hot. Again, calling back to the oven thing. It, the oven loses its status as a meat or a fish oven after it cools down. Grape products made by non-Jews may not be eaten. It is actually very, very, very complex. Now, 
you can say if the world catered to these ideals, it would be easy. But no matter how you look at it, the rules are very complex. And actually, it's really, really inhumane how they have to kill the animals. It's really not good. But that's neither here nor there. The vegans and vegetarians among us will will get where I'm coming from with that one. Animals that cannot be eaten. Of the beasts of the earth, quote-unquote, which basically refers to land mammals with the exception of swarming rodents, you may eat any animal that has cloven hooves and chews its cud. Any land mammal that does not have both of these qualities is forbidden. The Torah specifies that the camel, the rock badger, the hare, and the pig are not kosher because each lacks one of these two qualifications, which is hilarious because hare, which is rabbit, rabbits do not have hooves, cloven hooves, and they don't chew cut either, I don't believe. Sheep, cattle, goats, and deer are kosher. Of the things that are in the waters, you may eat anything that has fins and scales. Thus, shellfish, such as lobsters, oysters, shrimp, clams, and crabs, are all forbidden. Fish like tuna, carp, salmon, and herring are all permitted. Oh man, I'm getting hungry for some seafood right now. For birds, the criteria is less clear. The Torah lists forbidden birds, but does not specify why these particular birds are forbidden. All of the birds on the list are birds of prey or scavengers. Thus, the rabbis inferred that this was the basis for the distinction. Other birds are permitted, such as chicken, geese, ducks, and turkeys. Of the winged swarming things, winged insects, a few are specifically permitted, but the sages are no longer certain which ones they are, so they've all been forbidden. Rodents, reptiles, amphibians, and insects, except as mentioned above, are all forbidden. As mentioned above, any product derived from these forbidden animals, such as their milk, eggs, fat, or organs, can also not be eaten. Rennet, an enzyme used to harden cheese, is often obtained from non-kosher animals. Thus, kosher hard cheese can be difficult to find. Really, really fascinating, honestly. It's very fascinating. And there, there's a lot more information on here that goes into a lot of detail. Um, I don't know. Maybe worth a look if you guys want to read it. But it, it very clearly has a pro-kosher slant. So take that for what you will. Uh, all right. So first up was Glenn was asking if he saw his question and asked Telltale. He said, too long, didn't read. I asked, reflecting back on almost four years, what do you think is the reason for your success? Reflecting back on almost four years, what was the reason for my success? Okay. Well, let me give you guys a little bit of YouTube advice. If you keep going, if you, if you don't stop, you will succeed eventually. Time is the factor that separates the winners from the losers in a lot of ways on YouTube. And part of the reason for that is because as time goes on, as you put more energy and care into the channel, you come up with new ideas and new ways of doing things. Um, for example, as, as I, when I first started my channel, I was just, it was a debunk channel. So I found like a spirit science video and I would let the clip play and then I would cut the audio out of a clip and and just play an audioless clip over me talking about it and debunking it. As time went on, I learned that the audience wanted a little bit more and I started trying to play with it and figure it out. I got an iPad Pro and started drawing with it and that was one of my first breakthroughs. Eventually, I added a blueprint background. That was another breakthrough. I added music to the background, another breakthrough. Then I changed my blueprint to a 
blackboard background. That was another breakthrough. There are like artistic breakthroughs that I've had throughout time. And I, I feel like I can attribute my success to a combination of just not stopping at any cost, just continue working and doing it no matter what, no matter how good or bad the channel is doing, just don't stop and innovating as a result of that drive. And also, I can attribute it to the timing that I entered. A lot of the atheist YouTubers at the time were going off into a direction that like a lot of people just did not care about, like talking about politics and stuff a lot. A lot of people just didn't care and they missed the atheist content. The atheists didn't miss the atheist content. They felt like they'd already covered it a billion times, which I understand. But there are a lot of people out there who still need this stuff. Right now, it's 9.30 at night. There's some dude somewhere, some Jehovah's Witness, who's laying down in bed with his wife and just now realizing that he doesn't believe it. And he'll lose everybody if he says anything. And he doesn't know what to do. And who knows, tomorrow maybe he'll get on YouTube and start reading about the Watchtower Society. Start listening to videos about it. Who knows? For that reason, for that guy, for that Jehovah's Witness, for that Mormon who's asking questions, for that Seventh-day Adventist, for the Catholic, for everybody who's exiting and doesn't know what to do or where to turn or who to ask and isn't even sure of what's happening in their lives or what they're going to lose by revealing what they believe or don't believe, that's who I will do this stuff for, who I will always do this stuff for, no matter what happens in my life. There's your answer. Um, I, I attribute it to old atheists getting into politics instead of holding strong and, and continuing on the path to help people out. And, and I just came in at just the right moment. And I also attribute it to just never stopping, like just continuing on pushing through the burnout and everything else and innovating as a result. So there you go. Just Ashleen had asked, do you think Baptist churches are cults? It depends on the Baptist church very much. Um, Baptist is kind of a, an, an, it's another umbrella term. It's like Christianity in many ways. It's very umbrella term. There are some extreme Southern Baptist churches that are really, really crazy and really scary that I would most definitely call cults. I would have to go on a case-to-case -case basis, or I'm sorry, a case-by-case -case basis, I guess. But yeah, I, I would say generally, I think Baptist has a tendency to go in the extreme direction more than other denominations sometimes. The meme chief, Gabe Lincoln, says, T-Dog, if you had one, what's your favorite video you've made? What is my favorite video that I've made if I had one? Honestly, I was really, really happy with this expose that I did on Kent Hovind and Ken Ham. I don't know if it was even that good. I was just really happy with it. I just, I, I put a ton of time and work into it, and I just felt like, it, the time was well spent. The video did so-so. It didn't do bad. It didn't go viral. I've had videos go semi-viral, like 700,000 views, for example, but that one didn't. I think it probably got 150K, somewhere in there. But uh, 
Yeah, that one didn't. I, I don't know what makes a video go viral and, and what doesn't make it go viral or why it doesn't go viral. I, I have no clue why some do really, really well and some do really, really poorly. But some videos I've done, there was almost no effort put into it and it just exploded. Like, it was a subject that needed to be covered. It was something that was really entertaining and really interesting to people. Uh, so I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily like I'm unhappy with the video or something. I just feel like I put so much drive and passion and work and love into some of these other videos and the YouTube algorithm for one reason or another does not favor them. So I would say my Kent Hovind and Ken Ham video is probably my favorite, but like I said, it may be complete garbage. I haven't seen it in forever. A video that I'm really, really unhappy with is probably, um, just for quality uh, reasons, I would say my Branch Davidian video, like the one on Waco, Texas I did. I feel like the quality was kind of not super fantastic. I feel like I should have done higher quality, put a little more emotion in my voice, things like that. Content was there, but I feel like I could have done a better job with it. I just want to make note, I'm getting like a bunch of super chats, so I just want to read these real fast. Um, Omega Riley, holy hell, man, you are giving me, I, I swear, this. I'm living off of this guy. He's like the best fan. Thank you, Omega Riley. I couldn't think of anything funny to say. Here's $5. Don't forget to like the podcast. Solid uh, advice. And then he sent another $5. Your mic sounds like poo-poo. Fix it. Okay, fixed. Thank you. Glenn says, you got pretty words, boy. That's creepy, dude. Okay. I said that in a way that I would expect to hear, like, somebody up in the woods. Like, I get lost and I start hearing dueling banjos and somebody comes up behind me and grabs my shoulder and whispers in my ear, you got pretty words, boy. That's what I would expect when I read those words. That's creepy. So th thanks, Glenn. I appreciate that. Omega Riley again, when YouTube disappears, you should become a motivational speaker. That was a great monologue. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sometimes this stuff comes out, sometimes it doesn't, but that is how I feel. Sometimes I'm capable of expressing the way that I feel adequately, and other times I'm not. So I'm glad that, that you know, I, I communicated that adequately. Avery, you helped me to stop feeling guilty about being trans. I'm so glad to hear that because I can only imagine that the religious people around you have not made that easy for you. Like I said, I can only imagine because I've never experienced it, but I'm glad that I could contribute anything at all to making that process easier for anybody. So good luck with the whole process because I know it's not easy, but I will have your back through all of it always. Uh, let's see, Amanda Ramos, $2 super chat. Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate that. And Omega Riley, another $5. Man, and a heart. You know what? I'm going to send a heart back. There you go. A heart. Thank you, Omega Riley. That's fantastic. I got another super chat from Tyler Lunday. Thank you, Tyler. That is really fantastic. I'm so glad you guys uh, are super chatting me. That's really great. Thank you so much. There is one more super chat that came through from Pond. Your videos have helped me transition to atheism and away from Orthodox Roman Catholic family. I'm forced to watch your vids in secret, so thank you for being a lifeline. Don't stop making videos. I will never stop making videos. Never. No matter what happens, 
whether YouTube demonetizes me or not, no matter how this goes down, I will not stop making videos on the on these subjects ever. So I'm glad that I could help in some small way for all of you. I'm glad you guys think that my stuff is worth listening to at all. Uh, so. Niv Mizzle had asked, what are your opinions on the Creation Museum? I actually went to the Creation Museum not long ago. Well, I don't, it's been like a year or something like that. Uh, it was really, really weird um, and and super disappointing that like they put so much money into such a ridiculous thing. Can it even be called a museum? I don't know. I don't think so. But they have like animatronic dinosaurs and all kinds of stuff there. Like millions and millions of dollars poured into this thing. It's so disappointing. And of course, the classic, it's like a meme at this point, the dinosaur with the saddle on its back. It is hilarious to look at. And also at the same time makes you want to cry. <laughs> but I did take a bunch of pictures when I went. And I went with Godless Engineer actually. He's a pretty cool cat. He's a pretty nice guy. It's just a very, very strange thing. And I find it fascinating. Like, they're kind of making up lore as they go along. So, for example, if you guys are watching the podcast, okay, I just Googled Forbidden Fruit. The first result says weed. That's kind of amusing. So, this is a picture. If you're watching the podcast on YouTube or something, this is a picture of the, the fruit that they depict in the Creation Museum. They're really making up lore because it doesn't say what the fruit was. And in fact, a lot of people say Satan tempted Eve. That's not true. The Bible doesn't say Satan tempted Eve. It says a snake tempted Eve. I find it fascinating how everybody, every modern or most modern day Christian denominations have read Satan into that verse when Satan didn't even exist in Judaism that long ago. Like, the, the, the figure of Satan wasn't made up until way later. So here we have a depiction uh, from the Creationist Museum of a wicked big snake. Presumably, it, it's supposed to be Satan. Tempting Adam and Eve with this weird fruit. It looks like a banana, kind of, with grapes coming out of it. It's really hard to describe. But... They're kind of making up their own lore as they go along, really, aren't they? I mean, the Bible doesn't describe it at all. It's like one of these questions, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? It seems like a trivial, innocuous question, right? But it's important. It's not trivial. It's relevant. Once you start asking questions like that and poking holes in this stuff, once you start poking holes in the lore, in the stories, it falls apart. Why would Adam and Eve have belly buttons? The belly button connects the baby to the placenta inside the mother. If they weren't born, why did they have belly buttons? So, ask questions like that. They're depicting this fruit in this picture again. Why are they depicting it like this? They're just making it up on the spot. Okay, um, I'll tell you what. Uh, Potato, do we have like one more question I'll take? It was asked earlier by uh, Glenn how Alpha Force Zero is doing. Oh, okay. Yeah, Alpha Force Zero is doing pretty well. Honestly, I've been traveling a lot, and I've been away from home and working entirely too much. For the past four days, I've been in New York, and I was home for four days before that with Alpha Force Zero. And then before that, I was gone for a week. So I am 100% done traveling. So sick of traveling right now. 
I'm sick of being away from Alpha Force Zero. So, yeah, no more travel for me for, like, a good couple of months at least. Uh, maybe if some really, really cool conference comes up in, like, October, November, maybe I'll do it then. The very last article that I wanted to take a look at, um, this was on New York Daily News. It says, Judge denies anti-vaxxers attempt to temporarily stop New York law mandating all school children be vaccinated. And there's a picture of... Robert F. Kennedy Jr. There's a picture of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. here in this picture. This is just from like four days ago or something like that. So Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is famous for being anti-vaccine. And he's got a lot of really interesting justifications for his position. You, you might say justifications, maybe the, the right word here. Let's just give the article a read. It says, a state Supreme Court justice in Albany which is in New York State, shot down an attempt by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and other anti-vaccine activists to temporarily block a new law mandating all school children in the state receive immunizations. A group of 55 families are suing the state in an effort to overturn the law passed amid a measles outbreak centered around ultra-Orthodox communities in Brooklyn and Rockland County, eliminating religious exemptions from school vaccination rules. This is not the decision I had hoped for, but I recognize that getting a TRO, temporary restraining order, against state legislation is very difficult, attorney Michael Sussman said in a Facebook post. I hope that further development of all the issues will cause this or another judge to preliminarily restrain the operation of this statute, and I will be working on making that happen. Sussman and Kennedy, chairman of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense, an anti-vaccination group, filed the suit earlier this week in front of a courtroom packed with young families from across the state. The suit argues that the ban on religious exemptions is unconstitutional and unreasonably interferes with religious freedom. You know, honestly, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has done a lot of good, actually. This is really destroying the good that he ever did. I don't know if you guys could tell, but I am obviously very pro-vaccine. I think you're, you are, all right, I'm going to be nice. I think that it's foolish for you to assume that vaccines are dangerous when all of the science has been debunked showing that they're dangerous and there has, there has been no science to support the dangers in vaccines. So there you go. That's me being nice about it. I think that you are a fucking dangerous fool for being anti-vaccine. There's me not being nice. And Robert F. Kennedy is being a dangerous fool, and it's disturbing how many people he has had a hand in killing. It's extremely disturbing. So, anyways. I actually saw him in an airport once. I saw Robert F. Kennedy Jr. walking through an airport one time. I walked right past him, and I recognized him instantly. I was like, that's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. What's he doing at uh, Chicago O'Hare Airport? That's kind of strange. Anyway, he's probably traveling. That'd be my guess. <laughs> I will leave you with one more interesting note for those of you who stayed to the very end of the podcast. I have two videos coming out. One of them is going to be on Catholicism and how it is a cult. The other is going to be on... God, am I even going to say it? I'm going to say it. The other is going to be on the Republican Party in the United States being having cult-like characteristics. Not conservatism. The Republican Party very specifically. 
And and I'm sorry, that's gonna it's gonna burn my channel to the ground probably. Anyway, all right guys, thank you for coming. I will talk to you next week.